Welcome to the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider, a podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by The Growery, simplifying sales growth, and Gorilla Technology, your proactive IT support partner. Welcome to episode two of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. I'm your host, Ben Rose, and today we're speaking to Jamie Beaton, CEO and co-founder of Crimson Education, the world's most successful US and UK university admission support consultancy, helping young people gain scholarships to Ivy League universities. Crimson claims that its students are four times likelier to gain acceptance to the Ivy League, Oxford, Cambridge, and more. Prior to starting up Crimson, Jamie graduated from Harvard University in 2016, two years ahead of schedule, with a double degree in applied mathematics, economics, and applied maths. He was also one of the youngest in the world to be accepted to Stanford's Graduate School of Business at age 20. Just some of Jamie's further accolades include New Zealand's EY Entrepreneur of the Year, New Zealand Innovator of the Year, NZ High Tech Young Achiever, and Young New Zealander of the Year. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. Real pleasure to be here. Exciting stuff. That's a, that's a huge list of achievements. It's been a wild ride last uh, several years, but a lot of fun working with our students. Awesome, awesome. Well, look, we're really keen to understand, I suppose, the role that sales and marketing has played in, in Crimson's success and how you guys have approached it and how you continue to approach it. So, Definitely. look, let's, let's, kick off, um, let's kick off on that basis. Tell me about the role that uh, sales and marketing play inside your business. Yeah, so I think um, uh, our business from the beginning has been direct-to-parent, direct-to-student. So um, we are and always have been focused on reaching out to families directly and um, as a result, you know, we need to build up quite good digital marketing, mm. um, offline mm. marketing activities, you know, do things like PR. And then on the sales side, we have quite a large direct uh, academic advisor team or sales team. Right. And they work with enrolling families. Um, so uh, we have many of the same kind of internal functions that you might see in like an enterprise SaaS startup um, from um, SDRs to academic advisors or salespeople all the way through to the marketing roles. Um, and I would say... Uh, at the beginning, um, we largely focused on kind of organic growth, um, a lot of, uh, you know, organic social media, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. As things developed, you know, referral, you know, continue to grow and grow and still is our biggest channel today. But we've amplified that with a lot of paid marketing channels and then built out, you know, quite a uh, robust international sales team selling across 20 different countries. So, um, yeah, happy to walk you through kind of the various pieces. Yeah, could you? So, so let's talk first of all about sales. So, so what's the yep. difference between an academic advisor and a salesperson? Got it. Okay, so um, I think Crimson's really uh, differentiates itself in this regard because when someone speaks to us um, from the first interaction, we're very committed to giving them robust academic advice. So the same mm-hmm. way you go to a hospital, you encounter a doctor, and they bring a lot of trust to what they uh, explain to you about different things. Yep. When you speak to an academic advisor, um, while they're going to, uh, you probably recommend a different type of Crimson service or something um, that ultimately will help you achieve your goals, the recommendations are really grounded in our learning uh, approach um, and um, the academic advisors are trained to a pretty high level on a lot of these kind of you know education components. So um, people will often find those conversations very informative and so they'll come in for these free consultations um, where they'll actually learn uh, probably more in that hour than they often heard from years in sort of their typical learning environment um, and that will be kind of their first gateway into Crimson. So an academic advisor um, is the kind of the, the, the sales function at Crimson but mm. we particularly do focus on making sure it's very solution orientated and very informative uh, you know uh, and that's been kind of our approach since day one. And how, how do you achieve that? How, what's the what, what does the training and the recruitment process look like? Yeah so um, uh, a lot of our academic advisors it's quite interesting so um, from the very beginning a lot of our academic advisors weren't traditional people from sales backgrounds or very experienced in sales right. um, rather they were generally quite high achieving academic students 
So when we started the business, I was 18, many of my initial team members were around a similar age. And so you might be speaking to sort of a 20 year old who has recently performed very well in their you know, NZQA scholarship exams, yeah. and they're giving you a set of recommendations based on you know, their experience. So at the beginning, it was bringing in you know, really academic uh, kids that knew what they were talking about basically. As the business has matured now, um, you know, that's become a lot more of a uh, robust scaled function. So we mm. do have a cohort of our academic advisors who do come from that really academic bent, tend to be you know, recent university graduates who are very passionate and directly experienced in this. We also do have some professional people that have worked in education you know, for uh, you know, five to 15 years right. that work in the function as well. And so we've you know, built up quite a repository of uh, content around the US, the UK universities process, different curriculums, mm. you know, the local school environments. We have different resources for them, like rankings of local schools. So they know kind of what to recommend, things like this. So um, quite a lot of content. And then we have uh, Slack communities and other things like this where people can answer questions and the academic advisors can rapidly learn from one another. Um, and then we uh, have quite a lot of like things like buddy systems in place as well, a lot of coaching. Um, we do a lot of things like recording our calls, et cetera, um, so that we can learn from some of those interactions. So that there are a couple of the kind of tactics we use. And, and the people who, who lead that function, are they, are they sales people brought in from outside or are they academic people who have kind of grown up in the organization? Um, actually, it's, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. So um, our chief revenue officer, um, who manages um, you know tens of millions in terms of his targets mm-hmm. uh, is 24 years old. Yeah. So um, uh, I met him in a cafe at Yale in US in Singapore, which is a school over there. I saw that he spoke Russian, um, and somebody told me he was very entrepreneurial. So I asked him if he wanted to launch a Russian operation. So at about 19, he um, uh, flew to Russia, took a gap year from school, wow. launched that operation. Um, and last year it was our third largest global operation. You know, it's one of our biggest offices. He built this whole infrastructure and then went on to manage. Um, you know, multiple regions successfully, and then you know all our global markets across core. So uh, he's a very good example of in the crimson environment. You know, we put a lot of focus on outcomes and achievement rather than necessarily like your historical track record in a different environment. Yes. And his quite unique combination of you know being data driven, being very mathematical, understanding the student experience well, uh, and having done it firsthand from scratch in, in Russia in this case. Um, you know, uh, is why he's been very effective. So I've actually seen a lot of external hires that have come from, you know, heavy duty revenue uh, experience roles that mm-hmm. aren't used to getting their hands, you know, dirty, so to speak, yep. working with a lot of families, yep. um, not quite hit in our environment compared to these homegrown talent inside the organization. It's also quite good for retention because we get a lot of these people that are, you know, with us for a longer time than mm-hmm. traditionally salespeople stay around yes. because of this homegrown development track they have. Um, I guess... Not all our people like this, though. So we've got more than 20 country managers who mm-hmm. manage the local mm-hmm. regions. So we've got, you know, someone who manages Russia, Korea, Brazil, etc. Mm-hmm. And many of them come from, you know, quite experienced backgrounds, maybe former management consultants, former yep. bankers, things like this, that have con- come in to manage their team after quite good academic success in their earlier years. Yep. And so it's a bit of a mix. But that's a good example, you know, Andrew, of, you know, the some of the differences we apply in our internal model. So so it's really interesting. So so do the do your salespeople tend to stick in sales or do they move to other parts of the business? And, and does the same apply to your marketers? Yeah, um, okay, so I'll take sales. So um, yes, uh, the academic advisor or sales track is one of the most um, versatile tracks within Crimson right. because um, to sell in Crimson, you have to be an expert in the product, right? And you have to really understand what we're um, providing for families very well. And that yes. naturally means you're quite good in things like product management, you're quite good in different you know, sales and marketing roles because mm, you understand mm. who we're targeting very well. Yep. Um, you can be useful to, for example, like um, you know, new product launches because you've seen what works elsewhere. So we see a lot of the academic advisors kind of maturing and growing up with the organization. Um, 
I think of, for example, the team that's recently launched the Crimson Global Academy, which is our online high school that's growing really fast across New Zealand and many other countries. And many of them came from our Crimson Core academic advising team right. from many years ago and right. have, have developed. Um, on the marketing side, I'd say the same thing is true. Um, I would say it's more true in sales, but I'm still pretty true in marketing in that we do have a lot of progression around mm -hmm. the organization. A recent example would be one of my team members, Alex Cork. So he um, was with us for several years, helping us launch Australia, doing a lot of local area marketing. He arranged, you know, hundreds of school talks around Australia, things like this. Right. And then, um, you know, uh, he recently moved to lead our new podcast, the Top of the Class podcast. And so that's quite a pivot in skills, but we recognized he was very entrepreneurial. Yeah. He loved yeah. extracurriculars. Um, and that was, you know, going to be the, the new kind of outlet for him. Great. So we do encourage a lot of that internal mobility. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, let's let's take things back to the beginning. Yep. Um, when when it was just you yep. um, and an idea, how what role did sales and marketing play in, in this whole thing starting yeah I mean I kind of feel like sales is um, existential to the success of any organization and I'll kind of explain why so first of all you know um, at the beginning I have to convince you know tutors fellow people to join Crimson when we have nothing right so yeah. I've yeah. got to make them believe in me and believe in what we're trying to achieve I've got to make families you know believe in our potential from you know not any yet achieved academic results of clients but only our personal academic achievements yes. Then I've got to convince investors that um, you know uh, this is something that's worth investing in, mm -hmm. and so I do think the core sales capabilities are really important, kind of across the board. Um, and I don't really view sales as like you know sort of um, hyping up something, this kind of thing, uh, but I do view it as being an expert on your subject matter and being able to really persuade someone who's you know quite credible of uh, what you're trying to achieve with a lot of detail and precision. So um, yeah, I think fundamentally sales has been a key attribute to our early kind of success. Um, on the marketing side, I think, you know, we quickly had a lot of great academic achievements from Crimson. And so marketing was crucial in spreading our brand rapidly across New Zealand. So I think about, for example, one of my first students, Samil, from Hamilton, Hamilton Boys High School in New Zealand. He joined us when he was about 15. We helped him get into Harvard, Stanford, a bunch of other schools. He was the um, top, one of the top Cambridge students in the world, scored top in the world multiple exams. And he actually landed on the front page of the New Zealand Herald, um, you know, in his year 13 year. Wow. And the, the headline was, is this New Zealand's smartest team? And yeah. it talked about Smeal and his achievements and yeah. how Crimson had supported him. You know, and that, that single kind of thing sort of put us on the map um, across many families. So mm. we found the combination of, you know, uh, amazing student success plus organic media coverage and organic social content and sharing from our students was really a big part of the growth. So from zero to five million in sales, we spent less than 1% of revenue on paid marketing activities yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, as you scale, though, and, you know, you take an institutional capital, you're trying to achieve a lot of scale. You, you know, it's actually inefficient to kind of underspend on paid marketing, you know, because you need to amplify your organic referrals. Yes, yes. Um, so, uh, you know, we've amped that up in recent years, but um, that kind of shows the power of that organic uh, attraction at the beginning. So, so, so let's talk about um, for, for smaller business owners and founders who, yep. are, who are thinking about the role that sales and marketing should play in their business. What, what would you advise them? What would be your, your top tips for them? Well, I guess, first of all, sales has to be front of mind for like everybody from, you know, you could be a technical founder of a tech startup. Ultimately, you know, cash is what keeps the engine room running. You know, you yeah. can't achieve your vision um, unless people are willing to, you know, part with hard-earned money because your product adds value to their life. Yep. So I think the first thing I'd say is like, this, is, this can't be like a second or a third or a fourth priority. It has to be like fundamentally at your focus um, because... 
yeah, this is the fuel that fuels everything. And, mm. you know, capitalism mm. is great and you can build amazing things that can impact the world, but not unless the market values it. So yes. yeah, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, first, that's my first message. I think the second thing I'd say is it's really useful if you, the founder, are, you know, the, the expert in sales in your company to start with. You know, I trained all of our uh, original academic advisors after doing a lot of sales myself to mm-hmm. families. And that meant I had trust with them. I had credibility. Yep. I knew if someone I hired wasn't doing well, um, you know, where they were making mistakes because I'd been through it myself. Mm. I think if I had never done sales, which some founders try and do, then you're really going to struggle to kind of audit the, the sales team and, and figure out kind of when it's the product, when it's the salesperson, et cetera, which is particularly difficult in the early stages of product market fit. So, um, yeah, I, I think my other second advice is, you know, you need to go hard in sales, even if it's not your personality. You need to you need to get out there or make sure you've got a co-founder who's going to do that. Yeah, there, there often seems to be quite a lot of reticence um, to, to get into sales because it's seen as um, something that's, you know, it's it's not for me, it's a bit dirty or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting to hear your, your take on, you know, the role that plays and that actually it's just about meeting someone's needs. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, I was chatting to um, uh, this very talented personal trainer recently um, and he was describing, you know, he's got like a full roster of clients, etc. that comes in and the way he bills is on an hourly basis, right? Um, right. And so um, what I was describing to him is when someone comes in for consultation, they don't actually want to buy like a couple of hours of PT sessions. What they want to buy is a solution. So it could be, I want to lose 10 kgs to look good for my you know, wedding. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. you know, I want to be you know, fit for my partner who's yeah. in better shape than I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, actually, rather than sort of pitching this hourly engagement, you know, you could pitch a program where the outcome is achieving 10 kgs weight loss. It's mm, going to be over mm, six mm, months mm, and it's mm, going mm. to be, you know, three hours a week at the hourly rate over that period. Yeah, yeah. And actually, many people will find that even more compelling because it's an end-to-end solution to their problem. And it's going to be high ticket, but it, it's a comprehensive solution. Um, and there's full alignment between what the person's trying to achieve, what you're trying to achieve. So I think, you know, um, I'm a very big advocate of sales, not just being about, you know, uh, you know, kind of pushing something, but yeah. actually finding that genuine need, maximizing product market fit and, and actually capturing value for the company, but also delighting the customer too. So, so how do you do that as a, as a business? How do you identify that you're, you're meeting customer needs and that your product fits? Um, so in our case, it's relatively simple because... Mm. Um, families want to come to us initially there's more things now but at the beginning there's sort of two things the first is they want to improve their grades and that's very measurable you know you see how the kid does in their A-level exams or NCA exams you see how they're doing in their internal performance at school and the second thing is um uh, you know, uh, beyond that, in our case, it's university admissions results. So what okay. programs is the child getting into? And so, um, you know, as a result, it's no surprise what our service team's KPIs are. It's, you know, university admissions results and academic improvement generally. So um, there's really comprehensive alignment there. So when, yep. the, when the family comes in, we can quickly assess what's their current academic background, mm-hmm. where are they aiming for, what do they need to achieve that, what's realistic with the intensity they're using Crimson at, and then you know what kind of program will deliver those goals. And then as we got you know bigger and bigger and bigger, we were more and more and more accurate with that recommendation system. Yep. And then um, you know that, that creates like a lot of trust as well. So when families come in, you know, they know they're going to get a comprehensive solution, but it's going to kind of hit the mark. So that, that's kind of how I think about it. And how do you, how do you um, monetize that, that? How do you identify what's a fair value exchange for, for, for that service? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So um, first of all, I uh, you know, philosophically believe that um, you know, charging based on like, the value you're creating is, is you know, uh, the most efficient way to price. There are other ways you can price based on other dynamics, but I'll just talk about this for a second. Yeah. So uh, in my case, um, you know, I have students from, say, McLean's College in Auckland that 
would have gone to University of Auckland, probably go to you know PwC or something and start with like a 50k NZD salary, very yeah. respectable. Yep. They come through Crimson and then they um, you know end up, for example, at Harvard and then on, on Wall Street. And at mm-hmm. age of 22, mm-hmm. they're earning you know about uh, 120k USD, so 170,000 NZD. So they're earning you know more than many execs here, triple kind of what they would earn in New Zealand. And over the course of their life, that compounds to millions and like relative value that's being created. Yep. So. Um, uh, I don't really see the value that we give to somebody as like, you know, the hourly cost of the person's time talking to you, but in helping you unlock this fundamentally different earning trajectory, which is why I'm very comfortable um, with charging, you know, um, premium prices. Our average mm-hmm. package is about 15,000. Um, but, you know, families, you know, buy it and drove this around the world because we are delivering, you know, really solid value. So I think um, rather than focusing on being the cheapest, et cetera, that's often going to distract you from what really matters to the client, which is quality and achieving what they want. Um, so that's kind of what I would say in terms of broadly, you should think about the value you add, like the actual yep, economic yep. value of the transaction. For example, if you're a personal trainer, um, this is gonna, uh, actually, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult example. Um, uh, take, a, take a doctor, for example. Yep. You know, like if I am able to work more effectively because I, I don't have my back injury, and I'm yep. more productive at work so I can get more promotions, um, you know, that unlocks quite a significant amount of value. So yes. you shouldn't just think about your own cost basis for delivering the service, but also the value it creates and you know, meet, meet in the middle somewhere. The second consideration on pricing is the competitive market. So, you know, what is the alternative to the to the customer and how do you compare to that? So, mm-hmm. you know, if there's established people in the market that can deliver the advice that you can um, and they're charging, you know, a certain price, maybe you've got to start lower than them. Yeah. But um, that also provides a bit of a benchmark and a reference point for the value of the service too. Um, where I think it's a particularly interesting question would be subscription SaaS products mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, there's no marginal cost to the software company providing the service. And so... Yeah. It's really a question of you know kind of where the market intersects, but yeah, I think somewhere between this kind of competitive benchmarking and the value-based charging is kind of where you should set your price. And have you have you noticed different attitudes to that around the world, New Zealand versus overseas? Um, hmm, I think definitely. Yeah, def- I mean, definitely would be the short answer. So for here's a classic example: uh, law firms. Yeah. Um, uh, quite a funny one. So with lawyers, so, um, lawyers in, for example, New Zealand are very used to charging per hour for all mm-hmm, of their services. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, this can be quite dysfunctional because you may have, for example, a dispute that's like 20000 or something. Yep. And then, you know, rapidly in speaking to a lawyer, you could accumulate a $30,000 bill. Yes. So there's quite a dysfunctional incentive and you can't easily know, like, because you're not a lawyer typically, you know, interacting with these firms, you don't know kind of what a good deal is. And if yep. they're not thinking economically about, you know, the value of the claim, you know, it's just not going to make any sense. So mm. the average person um, involved in a legal dispute um, loses money even if they win net right, of fees. Right. So in America, there's a whole industry of pay for performance yep. where um, you can go to a law firm and they will take your claim and you only pay them if you win. Yep. And this solves that alignment problem because um, nobody's going to take your suit unless it's a good argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if they do well and they win for you, then you share the proceeds, but yep. you don't have to finance that risk with uncertainty. Yes. So that's a good example. If you speak to most New Zealand lawyers, they get outraged at the, at the principle of this pay for performance, but actually it solves a, a clear information asymmetry, which is why it's so widespread in America. And there's actually like a multi-billion dollar company that does litigation financing just for this purpose, often with expensive... Um, divorce lawsuits for example right, 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 where right, right, you know right. maybe the, the wife can't afford this expensive litigation yep. so she partners up with the company and and goes to town on uh, their um, unfortunate husband in this case so, <laughs> so so using that rationale why why doesn't crimson charge uh, no upfront fees and just take a trail commission on going from the uh, earnings of the individual it, no so i'm actually very interested in this income sharing agreements um mm. so uh, i think it's actually something that I really want to implement. There's, so I've thought about this quite extensively. The challenge with income sharing agreements is basically 
um, cross-border enforcement of it. So let's say, you know, we sign a deal with somebody in New Zealand and then they're going to go to Wall Street. And, you know, um, first of all, it's kind of a bit messy to be chasing your student for, um, you know, like the, uh, the, you know, the money that, you know, they owe you. Now, generally speaking, they're going to be very happy to pay because you delivered a lot of value to them. Mm. But there's just a lot of um, collection risk, um, uh, you know, in that cross-border dynamic. So, if income sharing agreements were like you know uh, enforceable across two geographies, three geographies, I think it's a perfect alignment of interest. And mm. we actually do a lot of um, just pro bono work, subsidized work, etc. Um, and sometimes students will do tutoring in return once they get in things right. like this. But I do really think these types of models are very effective. And there's a good school in America called Lambda School that does income sharing agreements for computer science education, because one of the fastest ways to boost someone's earning power is you train them in computer science, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you know they're you know often earning you know 80k, 90k plus. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so that school does that, but but they help American students within America, so they, they can yeah, do this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and the other consideration for us, I would love to do a model, and I would really love it actually. Um, a very lines my kind of philosophy of the family pays based on what school we get the child into um, because um, ultimately if we get them into Harvard the value is incredible and if we you know um, get them into an option that isn't very attractive then it's not worth anything we shouldn't get anything for that Um, but that is quite looked down upon by American universities um, because it's seen to be sort of like um, guaranteeing outcomes that are uncertain you know, in reality, it's like providing a um, you know a probabilistic bet on a set of outcomes and yes, you know right. aligning incentives, but um, it just has a bit of a taboo around it in, in the industry. So um, probably we have to be a little bit bigger before we uh, I push that. Yeah, but, yeah, you know, very maybe down the down down the grapevine. Excellent. All right, we'll look out for it. <laughs> Alex, so Jamie, what what in your opinion are some common myths about sales or marketing? Um, first of all, I think the most important thing to understand about sales and marketing is sales and marketing can profitably amplify a great idea and it can profitably amplify something that's working well but it doesn't magically solve like the problem of a, of a shitty product so mm-hmm, if you have mm-hmm. if you have something that isn't really working yeah. and you just try and spend much money on sales and marketing you're just going to burn all of that money yeah. um that's the first thing the second thing is most marketing opportunities are bad deals so if you for example call up any billboard company or you call up any you know um, media outlet or something yep. and you just go and buy their advertised service most people that buy that lose money on that deal so th- it's not this idea that you just go buy a billboard and suddenly it's profitable most of these are bad deals um, and the price is not set based on how much value it creates for your business the media outlet has no idea how much value it creates for your business they're just charging this price which you know they just think the market can bear a lot of the time, a lot of customers buying this kind of ad inventory are one-time customers. They go and spend a bunch and then uh, they don't have a good result and they churn and there isn't that repeat customer. So when you navigate marketing, particularly paid marketing mm. that isn't digital marketing, yes. um, you know, you're in a, in a landmine where almost every deal is a bad deal. So you, you've got to be really know who you're targeting to make that worthwhile. Um, so I guess uh, why there's been this big secular shift towards digital marketing is that you know you can really measure cost per lead, cost per conversion, cost mm-hmm. for you know because in an ideal market, the advertiser you're paying is sharing in the proceeds of your win, um, but the incentives aren't really like that in other types of marketing. So overall, the second myth is that you know all marketing works well, a lot of marketing works well. Actually, most deals are bad deals. So you've got to be super selective, or you can just burn a ton of money and get no results. Literally, no results. Where, where are you basing? What are you basing that on? That most deals are bad deals. I'm really um, interested in that. Uh, yeah. So I guess um, I will point to, for example, TV advertising, mm. um, and I, I can think of a lot of different companies that have run. You know, one example would be you know the New Zealand school Auckland International College. It's like a private school here. Um, they bought a bunch of advertising on you know New Zealand TV, spending tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and then they got like a trickle of inquiries, very few converted. So, you know, it's negative ROI experience. 
The other thing is if you, you know, I've spoken to salespeople from these companies once mm, they leave mm, them, mm. and then you ask like, how confident your client's going to get results, and they have they have no conviction. And then you ask, where's the price set from? And they say, oh, the price just gets set for us. Um, and then you ask them about their repeat customer reorder rates, and they're not very high. So in a world in which like, you know, billboard advertising and you and, and advertising in like you know different publications was so effective, you'd have mm, massive mm. reorder rates. You'd have you know um, a lot of repeat business all the time. But that very rarely happens. Often the buyers are people like you know McDonald's or um, the people like you know the warehouse where they are targeting people so broadly mm. that it's easy to justify these big splashy campaign budgets. They've already got so many customers coming in that whether or not the marketing is super effective, they're probably not going to notice it that much. And it's hard to t- hard to measure the tracking. So it's often big budget companies with a lot of bureaucracy that are doing these big ad campaigns. But the scrappy startups that have you know a marketing budget of 100k, you know they're very rarely going to be reordering these because when they buy it and they study the results so carefully, they don't they don't see any wins. Um, so yeah, I guess. The incentives that drive the pricing, speaking to former salespeople, and then just my experience with a lot of different companies would would suggest that it's usually a winning, a losing strategy. And how how best to how best to resource that then? So so if it, if it is you know so fraught with landmines, how yeah. do you how do you make sure that the people who are doing that for you and your business are the right people? They know they know what they're about. Yeah. So I guess if uh, for most people listening to this podcast, like it is you, the person listening, the founder of the company that should be first involved in these at the beginning, mm. because you need to really know what you're buying before you start writing checks to these types of things. Secondly, when you get into these environments, like. The price of a billboard is set very arbitrarily, and a lot of the measurements they provide of like how many people see it and stuff are, are very vague and you know uh, very hard to quantify and validate. So, you want to negotiate and really get a good price um, for that first entry. I always say this: if the person's so confident that their advertising inventory is good for you, then they'll be happy to you know give you a good price in the first one because it's going to work. So you're going to keep reordering. Where you know things are a bit um, dysfunctional is when they want you to buy a lot of things up front. And um, you know they want you to commit uh, all in one go um, because that's the kind of pattern of a company that's used to have a lot of one-time sales, which is often what you get when you speak to these types of organisations. It's quite rare they're willing to do, you know, a, a cheaper first trial, etc., because they know that it usually doesn't work for the customer. So you can test how confident the organisation is by this kind of negotiation. Um, Social media is a perfect example of a place that's very confident in its marketing because in social media the prices are set based on, you know, um, I guess the, the bidding auction process of many different companies and it's very targeted, very personalized. And Facebook makes the algorithm, you know, tune your ads so they're as effective as possible, which in turn means you're more likely to do well compared to these offline channels that do no tuning for you. And so that's kind of why there's just been this huge adoption of Facebook, Google, and the secular decline in spend everywhere else. Okay, and let's let's talk about sales now. So some myths yep. about sales, because I'm really interested in understanding your your approach to that. Because you know you you, you were talking about you know lots of founders are, are quite introverted, but sales is a really core part of what they do. So yep. what are some myths around sales, and how should people think about about sales? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, myths about sales. Well, I think the first thing that you said, you know, sales is dirty. I think it's totally wrong, right? Like, um, if your product adds real value, the more you sell it, the more value you create in the world. So, um, mm, you know, mm. if if every time you enroll, in my case, a student, or every time you know uh, you help a new firm join your uh, agency, um, you're really improving their outcomes. Then, then sales is the way you magnify impact. So, I think. Sales should be evangelical inside a company. You know, it should really have a lot of excitement behind it. Um, and you know, salespeople know when a product's effective or not. So, yep. if you don't have the working product, you know, don't sell it. Make it work first. But assuming you've got something you're confident in, then um, you know, the sales team should be one of the most amplified, you know, excited, you know, teams in the company yep. because they're ultimately spreading the good work everywhere. Um, so I think that that's an important mindset shift, like mm, um, around yeah. sales. Second thing is incentive design. I think that's a very big one. Um, 
salespeople inevitably are very wired to their incentive schemes. So yeah. you need to choose very carefully how you compensate them. So for example, if you pay based on revenue and um, people can give discounts, then unsurprisingly your salespeople will give a ton of discounts. If you pay a commission on gross profit, they're gonna be, they're gonna be a lot more careful because yep. um, you know they're sharing the same incentive you are as well. So you need to either like you know uh, have no discounts or cap them or have approval policies um, if you're gonna do commission on revenue uh, or you make a commission on gross profit and that kind of solves some of those misaligned incentives. Um, so I guess uh, you wanna design those incentives very, very carefully and you probably don't want to make them too complicated either, because um, you know even relatively um, even relatively simple commission schemes that have some degree of modification based on targets, it's very hard for anyone to predict how they're going to do in a given month. Yep. And people don't like uncertainty, especially for their income. Mm, so mm. the the cleaner and simpler you can make your sales reps commission, usually the, the happier they're going to be. Um, so usually the more complicated the scheme, the more you've got to pay for it ultimately, because people people will want more in equilibrium to take this complicated scheme. Yes. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the other thing I'd say. Have you and have you um, experienced multiple versions of incentivization or is that something you kind of um, got right from the start? Uh, I think our, so our starting block was pretty solid. Um, uh, we had a flat, just flat commission scheme, yep. which what flat commission scheme and uh, there's no ability to negotiate on any price. So basically it's locked by our team and so the salesperson has no flexibility to discount so we don't have any incentive issue. And then over time, um, we have added in a bit of an accelerator scheme. So basically, as you perform relative to your target for a given month, you um, you know can earn slightly more commission. Um, and that has come in after you know a lot of data on mm -hmm. what's realistic, what can be achieved in various market conditions. Yep. So our sales teams know these are achievable quotas and it's quite motivational because they can push harder and do better in a given month. Yep. Um, and it also helps with forecasting because when you have sales reps that have just open commission, flat commission, mm. they have really no incentive to hit a certain target. Like you can give them right. a number, but it doesn't really affect them at all. Yeah. When you have quota-based commission schemes a little bit, then you know they're aligned to drive a revenue outcome that syncs with your outcome, which syncs maybe your investor's outcome, Absolutely. and everyone's happy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. as you that's kind of really as you grow up a little bit, that that we've moved a little bit to that. Um, mm -hmm. But we still keep it pretty simple, and we don't have wide accelerator ranges. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And is it relatively transparent across the organization, how it's structured? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very transparent. So um, people all across the company kind of know, generally speaking, what everybody roughly is on. The structures are very uh, comparable across, you know, the different markets. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we, we like that because we have a lot of staff that move between offices, things like this. Right. And, you know, um, I think if you're working hard in the market for a long time, um, you know, and you find somebody else, you know, in a couple of seats has got a different scheme, you know, it's a really quick way to annoy somebody who, you know, is doing well for you. Yeah, so I think that um, consistency is important. Yeah, great. Okay, Jamie, let's talk about um, your own career. What what would be the um, the, the sales, sales or marketing achievement you're proudest of so far? I'm sure there are lots to come, but <laughs> so far, what's the, what's the best one? Um, that's pretty interesting. I guess... Um, uh, hmm. We hit uh, we hit twenty million in sales faster than kind of any major New Zealand tech company had before. Um, so I think we're a couple of years ahead of zero to hit that milestone, um, and that was quite a good one. So I, I was quite happy with our speed to there. The other one I'm quite happy with recently is just the quite explosive growth we're seeing in our online high school. So um, to give you some quick context, this school provides students all across New Zealand access to 
uh, two international qualifications. One is the A-levels, which is a British qualification. One is the AP, the American qualification. Right. And so, you know, 99% of the country are in physical are in physical schools doing NCA. Yep. And, you know, that isn't necessarily so globally competitive. So you can join our school part-time or full-time. And um, COVID's really made this, like, um, you know, widespread mm. and, and understood by families. Yeah, 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 so we have absolutely. all these families, like in Kerikeri and Waikiki Island, you know, uh, in the middle of um, Costa Rica, you know, learning online with us now wow. and finding that social environment really exciting. And so just the speed of growth there, you know, we have this thing is growing about 4x faster than our fastest ever previous market launch in like six years of the company. And, um, you know, we've beat a lot of our targets so far by quite good margins. So that that's also, I'm quite, I'm quite proud of our speed to market with the school. And why, why do you think it's been so fast? Aside from um, a global pandemic that, you know, yeah, yeah. I think, was reasonably helpful. I think we're solving quite a big problem. Um, to give you some context here, right, take, take the traditional school in New Zealand. Um, that school uh, has to recruit all of its teachers from within 20 k's or so of the school because they've got to be able to go there every day. Yep. Um, the teachers have got to come locally as well, which means often that community is pretty homogenous. There isn't so much diversity in that school typically. And then it isn't particularly large, and so they can't offer kind of certain subjects. And in New Zealand particularly, there's a chronic gap in computer science and advanced math instruction. Okay. So you can't do computer science in most schools mm-hmm, at any kind mm-hmm. of rigorous level. So, um, you know, we're coming along and now anyone in the country can access um, teachers with on average 20 years of experience. It's led by John Morris, who used to run Auckland Grammar. Um, we've got like John Key and others behind it. So um, they're tapping into this international level of quality, um, international qualifications, meeting other ambitious kids from across the country and the world. It's really social because it's live interactive online classes. And so I think we're solving a very, you know, strong pain point and it's better for the parent because they get a lot more insight into how the, the child's yep, learning is going. Yep, yep. It's better for the student because they can get smaller class sizes, better qualifications, they can do them faster with, you know, sharper classmates. And then, you know, it's better for the teacher because they can work from anywhere um, and, you know, earn competitive salaries and be among really, uh, you know, inspired peers that really want to be there, where the many traditional schools have quite a variance in sort of, you know, the teacher's attitudes, I guess. Mm, so yeah. um, because we are improving kind of all three areas of the stakeholder experience, I think it's creating this quite good growth amplification. It's, it's interesting, though, that that wasn't your first product, you know, so one of the sales of which you're most proud is something that, you know, evolved and came later. That's right, yeah. And, and to be honest, this really came out of studying our pain points very closely of our students. So the way this came out is for seven years, we'd helped, you know, the world's most ambitious kids getting into their dream universities. And so we kept hearing from them about how going to physical school was so frustrating for them because they'd sit in these classes, they would learn slowly, they wouldn't right, be right. that inspired, they'd have very variable teacher quality. So we'd be sort of plugging gaps left, right, and center, helping them get tutors to fix this bad biology teacher, helping them get a computer science teacher to learn this. That boy, right, Samil, right. who got into Harvard, mm. we taught him computer science when he was 15, and now he did computer science at Harvard. So that's a good example of kind right, of plugging right. that gap. Yes. So after hearing all of that, um, you know, we thought, well, rather than being kind of like a like a victim to this schooling system that has a lot of challenges, why don't we just create the schooling system that we wish all these kids had? Yeah. And so, um, th- and then after seven years, we kind of had the credibility and results to do that. And that's kind of this next evolution. So back to my point of solving really hard problems, this is a good example of, you know, it, the, the rapid growth has evolved from solving a really focused pain point we saw, you know, thousands of times amongst our core student base. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that's something that's really helpful for, you know, business owners listening to this. Because, because often the you know the the most successful solutions aren't the ones that come first. Totally, yeah. Okay, so when you're when you're looking at how you execute your your marketing activity, your sales activity, yeah. how do you think about um, what uh, expertise and capability you want to have inside your organisation and what you use externally? What's your approach to that? Got it. Okay, so I think the first thing I'd say on on digital marketing. Okay, okay first of all, broadly, there are a couple of key channels to think about. There's referrals and how you amplify that. 
there's your paid marketing activities such as you know Facebook, Google, you know the dreaded billboards, um, and then you have your um, you know offline marketing. So that could be in my case things like school talks, etc. Yeah. But um, you know just field marketing activities, and yeah. then you know PR probably. So um, as you go through the various phases of growth, um, you know what you do internally versus externally uh, changes. You know obviously mm-hmm. so. Um, and the next thing I'd say is particularly digital marketing requires significant infrastructure because you need to be able to track things. You know, return on investment tracking is a non-trivial problem. You often need like Salesforce, Marketo, you know, um, uh, HubSpot, you know, yep. one of these products integrated yep. well um, with a team that knows how to use it uh, and a team to analyze data to, to make all this all work. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say at a minimum, you probably need, you know, six people on a good digital marketing team minimum internally to mm, do that mm, effectively. Mm. So for most small businesses, you know, it's worth outsourcing the digital marketing piece quite a bit, I think, yep. uh, at the start. Um, now, agencies have some, you know, perverse of sometimes. For mm-hmm. example, if they're compensated on a percentage of budget, then, you know, they're not compensated on necessarily, like, maximizing your profitability or your revenue, mm-hmm. um, but spending the most. So, um, but that sometimes is necessary, depending on, you know, it's hard for them to measure as well. So you need to choose an agency with a great reputation that, you know, um, you're very confident is, is aligned with you, wants to grow with you. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, a wide spectrum of quality. But I think in the early stages of a company, that's like probably quite good. Um, I think what you want to do internally is things like your copy, um, because you have to be able to speak to who you're, you know, selling to. You need to be able to know what they, you know, really understand. Mm. And agencies often not. If if the agency knows your customer better than you, then I think you've got a bit of a problem. Yep. So you need to be able to educate all these external people about, you know, who your segment is, and then bring them along to help them find the target. Um, they they can't kind of find your business for you. I think. So long story short, early days copywriting. Um, field marketing activities, um, PR, I think do that internally. Digital marketing, keep that external um, uh, for quite a while, um, but uh, consider having you know one internal resource to manage that. And then as you get bigger, you want to probably insource a lot of that. Um, you know, as you get as you have the kind of revenue, the budget to be able to sustain that big digital marketing team. Um, and uh, also, you need to be really careful with digital marketing because you can just spend so much money quickly on Facebook and Google. And yep. if the tracking's wrong, you know, mm-hmm. you can just burn it all on the, on the wrong areas. And I made I made big mistakes um, with my first digital marketing team, um, where I hired the wrong guy. He brought in a bunch of people that weren't the right people, and then I, I basically had to swap out fourteen people in this team right, um, right, and right. start from scratch, basically. Yeah. So, um, what yeah. Was, what was your What was your key learning from that situation? Um, that there are a lot of people that can sell digital marketing, but the share of people that can do digital marketing is right. a lot less. Right, so right, right, um, right. in this case, I was charmed by this. Uh, and the guy actually ended up going back to an agency that um, you know he had you know uh, hired while he was at Crimson. Right. And um, you, you kind of, he's like a sales maestro, I guess. Okay. But um, So I got sold, so, so to speak, yeah. in his expertise. And so um, I was getting kind of wrong information about like the ROI, mm. you know, getting right. wrong information about the leads, like the conversion rates. Um, it's quite easy for digital marketers to over-attribute what they're doing to their activities. Right. It could be that, you know, a certain student, in my case, has gone through a lot of different, you know, uh, channels. But if they um, are all attributed to digital, it could look, you know, too rosy. So you spend more money on it, and it's quite bad. So I guess overall, the lesson I learned was whoever you hire first is just mission critical. You need to be very patient with getting the right person, mm. and you need to be very careful of being kind of oversold to. And often you're not you're, you're not going to go you're not going to know as much as they do about digital marketing. So you need to bring in like an advisor or somebody to help you assess their ability. Yeah. A, some good agencies will actually help you make those hires and work with you to assess those incoming candidates mm. to mm. avoid that kind of information asymmetry issue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hire really carefully, and you know also dial up slowly, um, and make sure you actually can track things well before you throw throw in a lot of money. Yeah, fantastic. 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 Thank you. 
Well, look, you'll be pleased to know we're almost at the end. Um, this has been a really, this has been a fantastic discussion. So thank you. Yeah, it's been really fun. Look, <laughs> just just to end our time today, I'd like you to have a think and give a, your last piece of advice to our listeners. Um, something that they could take away from, you know, your I suppose your learnings through your career. Something they could take away and, and action tomorrow. What would that piece of advice be? Um, the most powerful enabler of our viral growth around the world has been, you know, our. Uh, success of our students getting into their dream universities and then wanting to share those stories uh, to inspire others to go down the same path. So ultimately, you know, what you need to do is go to your, you know, most excited customers that, you know, really resonate with your brand, your values, and are, are proud of, you know, the work you've done with them and get them to tell your story for you um, on video, ideally, um, and, you know, on podcasts, other channels, because that's ultimately going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Um, people don't, people are used to being marketed to every day by, you know, um, vague companies they don't really know. But um, the voice of people that have really been impacted by your service is so much more credible. So um, focus, focus, focus on delivery of outstanding outcomes and then get those people to, to, to chant your uh, success out there. And that will take care of your growth. Brilliant. Jamie, thank you. Much Cheers. appreciated. Thanks Real for coming pleasure. in. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. If you liked it, you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app for fortnightly episodes. For expert help growing your sales, find out more about The Growery at thegrowery.co.nz. And to find other shows that you might like, go to podcasts.nz.